American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. So one of the things historians like to think about is whether or not the American Civil War was caused by economic causes or political causes. Now, it's never one or the other. History, life, everything is pretty messy. But we can think about the sort of economic differences between the North and the South in the 1850s, the increasing ways in which their economies began to diverge and their interests began to diverge as well as something that led up to and perhaps made possible the Civil War. So, Ed, what do you think some of these differences are in the 1850s, where they're part of the same country, the same national, at least the national level, sets of laws? What are some of the differences you see between the North and the South in the 1850s? Well, it's important to remember that they're part of the same economy, and the North still depends heavily on the cotton economy. It's still the largest export that the country has. And it's still one of the most important ways by which capital gets brought into the United States. And finally, it is the biggest store of wealth in, in the national economy. One third of all the value of property, according to law, uh, in, in the United States economy in 1860 is enslaved human beings held in bondage in the South. So it's absolutely essential to both the North and South economically. Now, that being said, at the same time, it's less important to the North than it used to be. Slavery I mean, that, matters less to the North. Yeah, and that's what I would definitely emphasize, that even though it's still a huge amount of money, it's not, everything doesn't depend on it. That Southerners believe that they can basically push the North around because what is the North going to do? Everything depends on them. And certainly, this is one of the arguments that is made in the run-up to the Civil War, that Southerners believe the American economy is fundamentally a slave cotton economy. Right. Uh, they say cotton is king. And this is James Henry Hammond, one of the most um, loud, let's put it that way, proponents of, of the Southern cause. He's a South Carolina senator. He says cotton is king. No power on earth dares make war on cotton. Now, part of that is just rhetoric because, in fact, Southerners understand that the health of the slave economy depends on constant expansion, constant influxes of capital in particular, that drive these kinds of booms that, we've, booms that we've seen before 1819 and 1837. And they want to do that again, but to a large extent, especially after the Compromise of 1850, they feel territorially boxed in. They feel economically boxed in. So they start to try to push the, the North in order to create some space for further expansion of slavery in one way or another. And this expansion is necessary for Southern slavery because so much of the value of the slave is in the children of that enslaved person. The ability to sell and resell people over the generations, that internal slave trade into expanding new frontiers. And so just as northern capitalists need to constantly grow, so too do southern capitalists with their property in the form of slaves have to grow as well. So politically, what, what the South does is, as I said, it's a constant series of pressures that they they uh, um, lower or levy on the um, uh, national political system in the 1850s to try to force expansion. So in the early 1850s, the South tries to convince the national government to acquire Cuba from Spain. And there are a whole series of things that happen there, and ultimately the U.S. does not acquire Cuba. So then Southerners use their power in the Democratic Party. They dominate the National Democratic Party to convince the President of the United States and many of their northern allies in Congress to back 
uh, the conversion of some of the new territories that are being created out of the Louisiana Purchase, especially Kansas and potentially Nebraska, into slave territory. And this creates a huge uh, political explosion. This seems like a, a complete betrayal of the Missouri Compromise of 1819. And really from that point onward, it's just political conflict after political conflict as the South keeps pushing the North to enable it to expand slavery. And one of the interesting things here, of course, is that if you see and define capitalism as a system of wage labor, then clearly slavery is not a part of that right. system. But if you see capitalism as instead a system of connected investments, a system of the flow of money, you can definitely see the relationship, the deep relationship between the slave trade, the slave production, and northern capital. And you can begin to see the decoupling of the flow of that capital during this period so that capital in the north begins to find other outlets for investment rather just in the southern slave trade. But when people say that southern slave owners weren't capitalists, it really uh, doesn't make a lot of sense on a, on a certain level because again and again in this period what the South is trying to do is to force national political arrangements, whether we're talking about interpretations of the Constitution or federal policy or something like that, to say this, slaves are property and can be treated as property everywhere in the country. So in other words, they're going to overrule all the emancipations that happened in the North and the Missouri Compromise and the Compromise of 1850, and they're going to make the entire country treat enslaved people as property. They're breaking down all of the walls and all of the rules to make slave property universal. This is, in a way, a very capitalist move and one that is going to add tremendous value to their investments. And it makes the uh, achievement of emancipation coming out of the Civil War so much more meaningful, at least to me, the idea that an entire society can have one-third of its property in a certain kind of investment that is fundamentally immoral and then decide that is not okay, to decide immediately through war, but eventually to come to this emancipation and be able to have a society to continue a certain vision of capitalism. And so this moral containment, this sort of moral vision of a particular kind of capitalism is again remade out of this particular slave capitalism. So in the 1850s, there are a couple of different paths that the United States could take, and one of them would be wholesale commitment to the Southern idea that slavery is universal, that it's going to happen everywhere. And that would be a Southern path to further capitalist development. And that's not the one that ends up happening. So I think we can, first of all, all be thankful for that. But it also, as Lewis is saying, helps us to understand uh, the actual uh, drama of the Civil War in a much deeper way. It's economic, it's political, it's military, it's all of those things as well. And it decides the future that we today inhabit as our present. But cotton was not king. Cotton was no longer the only area of the economy that could be invested in, whether in the forms of slaves or advancing on uh, cotton production. I mean, what you see in this period, Ed, I think, is the opening up of the West, right, as a site of investment, whether that's in investing in the new kinds of mining or investing in the railroads or investing in, you know, agriculture, basically, in the West. And so New York investors begin to look West to put their money instead of looking South. And this is a real change. Yeah, and 
I think you also see even within in the north itself, the northeast, you see a diversification of industry. That's right. That um, goes into uh, that, that creates numerous new factories, factories that make things besides cotton textiles, because the consumer market in the north has grown large and diverse enough that the economy is creating those business opportunities uh, on its own without help from the cotton economy of the South or without direct assistance. So it's probably not surprising that a new party emerges in the 1850s in the North. And this is a party that in contrast to previous political parties does not depend at all on Southern votes. And in fact, by 1856, it's become obvious, I mean, they barely lose the presidential election that year, but it's obvious that if they just win one or two more northern states, they'll be able to win the presidency, which in fact they end up doing in 1860 with the election of Abraham Lincoln. We call that party the Republican Party. Yes. Uh, and the Republican Party has been through many stages in its evolution. But initially, what it emerges as is the party that represents the new capitalism of the North. information, go to edX.org and look for American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist, or go to facebook.com slash American Capitalism MOOC. This podcast has been brought to you by Cornell X from Cornell University.